1: Yes, it is, and Welcome back as we head into Hour 2. I have been looking forward to this hour uh, all day uh, from this morning when I uh, was able to get in touch with our guest, one of my favorite uh, people in America, one of the uh, country's most important public intellectuals, and uh, blessedly my uh, teacher, formerly and presently he is, Charles Kessler, the uh, editor-in-chief of the Claremont Review of Books, Professor Claremont uh, McKenna College, and author of most recently a truly, truly a beautiful book called "The Crisis of the Two Constitutions: The Rise, Decline, and Recovery of American Greatness." Professor, welcome back. How are you, sir?
0: <laughs> thank you very much, Seth. Uh, as always, it's a great pleasure to be with you, and uh, thanks again for inviting me.
1: Well, love, love having you, and thank you for the new um, issue of the Claremont Review of Books. Your opening essay. Is what I wanted to talk about, but you're a man of parts. I think I mentioned four of them, author, editor, professor, and uh, think tank fellow, (laughs) quadripartite. I will interview you in a quadripartite view. You've taught me a lot of words. Did you know that word, Charles Kessler? Four parts is quadripartite. Did you know that one?
0: I uh I um, don't think I've ever used that word. Um, <laughs> that's not <I>, answering
1: <laughs> You taught me autochthonous. Uh, I, I can I give do, you quadrapartite. Recognize <laughs> its
0: meaning. So yes, I, in a way I I must have known it even if I had never used it.
1: In mean in or, in, in in the Mino Plato says all knowledge is just unlocking things we used to know, right? That's right. It's,
0: it's, it's, yeah. it's, all knowledge is recollection. That's it. That's I it. must have known it somehow. <laughs>
1: Well, if you taught me if you taught me autochthonous, which you did, I think I can give you a quadripartite. Can we leave it at that? Is that a fair deal? Is that a fair deal? Thank you. Well, you
0: know, uh, Bill Buckley was an old friend of mine. Yeah, so I, I learned right. a lot of words. Uh, unusual, uh indispensable words from him, so I'm always looking for new ones. Thank you.
1: Charles, uh serious note. Thank you. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your teachings. Thank you for your Claremont review of books. Let's let's just build up a little bit uh because I love the way you do this and it it'll get to your book and it'll get to your essay to be sure as well. The Claremont Institute of which you are I'm blessedly a fellow you are a senior fellow and um a major part and parcel of just explain to the audience your thesis um and the Claremont Institute's views of um why we exist in the constellation of conservatism, that there's something about America we think is part and parcel of the conservative uh, cause that we should uh, be following. Talk, talk to, about, about that distinction of the Claremont Institute and Americanism, if you don't mind.
0: Okay. Um, look, I mean, there are many different kinds of conservatives. Um, there are conservatives who take their orientation from uh, Friedrich Hayek or Milton Friedman or from uh, economists and classical liberal philosophers on the libertarian side. There are conservatives who follow Edmund Burke and Russell Kirk uh, in making sort of uh, traditionalist uh, arguments within conservatism. And we respect those, and and we've learned from them. Um, But uh, the Claremont Institute's uh, kind of conservatism is different. Uh, our starting point is America, um, and we 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 choose this starting point both because it's our own, um, and because it is, I think, uh, uh, it contains what is essential to our political um, being and our political consciousness, and because it is so imperiled by modern liberalism, mm. because. Um, over more than a century, modern liberalism has been uh, transforming um, America. It's been turning this country into a different country, a different kind of country. And as important as um, Burke's lesson that slow change is the method of conservation uh, 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 in any in any political body, and as important as the case for uh, sort of um, minimal government and maximum free markets are in libertarianism, those things are, are important, but they don't really get to um, the cancer that's eating away at America today, um, because that cancer really goes to our national identity. What, what is America? What, it, what is it supposed to be? What are American citizens supposed to do um, as citizens? And, and that's why the, our point of view, which makes a lot of, uh, of Abraham Lincoln's example and the founding father's example, uh, and sort of the statesmen of our history and the, and the way they spoke to citizens and the way they thought about political problems. We think that whole inheritance is the, is the really vital one right now because it's precisely that inheritance that the left is trying to uh, transform, which really means uh, you know, replace, destroy, uh, and make a new a new America. You,
1: the benefit, Professor Kessler of great teachers yourself once told me that one sign of a great teacher is he can give the lecture you know he's going to give several times over, but each time you hear it, you learn something new. Listening to you on this, I either just learned something new, either just occurred to me, or it's really bleedingly obvious and I'm late to the game, but you tell me. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) In this focus on Americanism that the Claremont Institute has tried to uh, understand and, and teach and promote, Does this help explain a little bit why the um, gush and rush of anti-Americanism that cropped and popped up over the last two years, the cascade of anti-Americanism that came to us over the last two or three years, um, caught most of the non-Claremont conservative movement flat-footed because they weren't prepared? the way Claremont prepares to defend the idea and notion and greatness of America? Is that a possibility here? Why was so many of the Republican Party and conservative movement unprepared to understand what this onslaught meant the way we did?
0: Yes, I, I, <clears throat> I think basically you're right that uh, they, they were their eyes were elsewhere. I mean, they were focused on uh, the, the politics of American conservatism in a different way than we were. Um, although it, it, you know, it does, the, the anti Americanism you refer to didn't come out of nowhere. That's right. I mean, essentially, you know, it, it, it marched into the um, center of American politics back in the 1960s. And it's really, it's really been there ever since. Uh, it, it, it hasn't always been on the offensive, uh, it, sometimes it has retreated. It hasn't always been at the center of liberal rhetoric or liberal concerns. But uh, every now and then, um, when liberalism sees an opportunity and when the left goes on the offensive, um, you know, we find ourselves debating whether America is a a good country or it's a sick country. Right.
1: Right. And 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 it just seems to me we, we, we have been prepared for this because we have been wrestling with much of the conservative movement since, I don't know, at least that period of time, 60s, 70s, right, Charles, in understanding this very point that America is a great country, the best regime, right?
0: Yes. Uh, you know, I think America, I mean, Harry Jaffa, whom you uh, at least alluded to before, one of your teachers, and and uh, uh, I, I, though I never formally. Fair, fair to say, ours, yeah, yeah. Who a, taught it. Right. Yeah, and, sure. Uh, a kind of, uh, needless to say, a kind of teacher of yeah. mine, too. Yeah. Um, you know, Harry, uh, um, was, uh, um, instrumental really in making the case that this was, this was what conservatism was missing uh that they were that they had sort of forgotten the first thing about America which is that it's American mm-hmm. and that yeah, one that's one has right. to that's right. one has to sort of um uh think about that and be prepared to do something about it to, to uh to defend it and i think that's uh, uh you know it's it's more difficult to do than it sounds because the liberal attacks against it um um vary over time. They come from different directions. Uh, I mean, if you just look back at the last, you know, five to ten years, we, uh, you know, now we're in the sort of anti-racism, um, you know, radical identity politics part of it. But just a couple of years ago, we were rediscovering democratic socialism. Yeah, right. And we were all agog about uh, Bernie Sanders, and we were also very... There was a period when we were very concerned about the Me Too movement, and about sexism, not racism, but sexism being the great sin. And so, you know, the uh, the left in America can... um, You know, it has... It it plays these different themes uh, and can switch from one to the other. These leitmotifs, in a sort of Wagnerian way, emerge uh, at different times. And you... They all have, what they have in common is their a critique of America as either systematically racist or systematically sexist or systematically um, capitalism. Let me hold you but, right
1: there as we, as we have yeah. to hit this break. We'll pick up on it on the other side. We are talking to Claremont Review of Books editor in chief, Charles Kessler. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. We are delighted to be rejoined by Dr. Charles Kessler, Professor Kessler, Claremont McKenna College, Claremont Graduate School. He is also the editor-in-chief of the Claremont Review of Books, and uh, I want to talk about his opening essay in a minute. Uh, Before we get there, though, Charles and I were just kind of discussing uh, the anti-Americanism afoot and the kind of conservatism uh, needed to uh, stop it, indeed to reverse it. Um, and Charles, before we get to your essay and in that part here, it's really the end of your essay that has me so um, worried about this anti-Americanism that we see now, uh, either vocalized uh, or indeed being traded in for other doctrines like uh, socialism and Marxist movements uh, being paved on our streets and having uh, streets named after them. It's this last part of your essay in the the new CRB that, that worries me so much. Three sentences you write. We believed in ourselves then. This time may be different. It's hard to win the future. If you've already lost the past, what resonates with so many conservatives on that point, Charles, is we have been trained, as you have been, to read of people who lived through countries that did disappear through the rewriting of their pasts, whether it's Mm -hmm. the Vaclav Havels or the Milan Kunderas or even in some respects, perhaps the commencement you were at with Alexander Solzhenitsyn. We know what this means, and it's very dark when we've lost our past. And that's part and parcel of 1619 and everything they're throwing at us, isn't it?
0: Yes, it is. I mean, uh, you know, 1619, which the New York Times has been highlighting now for, I don't know, a year or so or more, um, was the year the first black uh, slaves or uh, indentured servants. It's a little unclear what their legal status was, but anyway, they were They were uh, introduced into North America at uh, at, uh, into British North America at Jamestown. It's also the first year, the the beginning of the uh, of representative government in the New World. It's the first year that the uh, assembly was constituted and met um, for for Virginia. Uh, And so one could you know even if you focused on 1619 uh, and not on 17. Seventy-six as the most important beginning point of America. The story they're telling you is only half the story of what happened That's in right. sixteen nineteen. That's right. Um, it's also the case that representative government um, got underway in the New World in a way it never did in French Canada or in you know the Spanish colonies to our south and in Central and South America. There was no representative government there. And not in Canada. Only in British North America at the time did you have the beginnings of that. And of course, again, next year in 1620, with the pilgrims arriving, you have the Mayflower Compact, and you have self-government spreading. With that outline, of
1: course, though, there is this – more than uh, what we used to think was a science fiction account of truly trying to rewrite this history. I mean we all grew up – you probably did too. I know certainly my generation. We all grew up reading 1984 as dystopian sci-fi with an emphasis on fi, fiction. Um, Right. (laughs) Do you know how many people you do because you have the same amount of people – come to me and say i was rereading 1984 and holy smokes you get that too i <laughs> bet right yes of course yeah yeah, yeah. it, so it is this are, memory uh, hole this rewriting of the past yeah. and this reversing of the past where the left seems to have taken on in a weird way the arguments of the confederacy <laughs> and the, you know the arguments of the confederates views of the founding and not lincoln's and not the prevailing view of the founding not the majoritarian view of the founding it's a very right. odd odd place we're in
0: yes and and they have both i mean both varieties of the pre civil war view you know uh, democratic view of the founding right. either that it was uh it was wrong it right. was simply you know uh wrong about human nature right. um uh, and that it was um you know that they that they were um genuinely um open to black humanity uh, and so forth but that they were hypocrites right. and their their actions disproved their nominal beliefs
1: or that slavery was a positive good in the eyes of the founders, right? Either yes, way, right. either, 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 either right. of those two either arguments right. of the Confederates is exactly what has been adopted by the BLM left progressive right. movement of America. They,
0: w- they, they have both of them. They right. Use both of them right,
1: right, exactly right, Ex- exactly yeah. right, which is what makes this battle so interesting. Um, as you were saying in the previous segment, I think, yes, right before the break, you were saying, you know, liberalism comes at us from, or leftism, liberalism comes at us from many very different angles and they're always shifting who thought we'd be fighting the left the left lost cause again but that's that's indeed where we are again because we have been untaught our history and it makes me all the more concerned this is a big question may take a segment or two to unwind but I I think about you know this civil wars cause and this country went going to war over one huge big important thing but it was one big huge important thing and today, Charles, minus the guns, don't you think this country is divided about almost everything, in a sense? It might be worse? Or do you think I'm overstating it?
0: Uh, no, I don't think you're overstating it. I mean, we're not quite at the breaking point right. yet. But right. I, it, it does feel like we're, you know, in the 1850s, the early 1850s mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. again, or at least we're rapidly approaching them, and that uh, it's just very hard to... You know, fine, people talk about common ground and compromise and so forth, and we're desperately searching for those grounds. But the problem is, if you have um, half, you know, if half the country believes it, it's fundamentally unjust, <laughs> that, that America is systemically racist or one of these other things, but systemically bad, uh, and the other half believes it's, to the contrary, it's systemically just, and a good—it's a good country, uh, you know—one worth preserving and uh, and uh, uh, enhancing. Uh, how do you keep house together? Right, you know, with one one half the people believe the country is a a sick uh, society, and that needs fundamental transformation, and the other half believes it's the best society in human history,
1: mm-hmm. Um,
0: mm-hmm. founded on you know uh, clear moral truth, uh, which has been imperfectly realized over the years, but has been fought for and uh, and died for and increasingly attained over the years. Uh, that, how do you, uh, you know, it, it's very hard to imagine you can find a compromise between those two positions.
1: Our guest is Charles Kessler. Amongst other things, editor-in-chief of the Claremont Review of Books, but also also author. I described the book as beautiful earlier. It is, and it's also the answer and um, the roadmap for The Way Out, author of a brand new book, Crisis of the Two Constitutions, The Rise, Decline, and Recovery of American Greatness. If you're interested in any of these things Charles and I are talking about uh, with regard to America, Americanism, cons- the Constitution, constitutionalism, and the war against the West, this book has it all. Crisis of the Two Constitutions with Charles Kessler. We'll be right back. A little A-train there for you. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. I am delighted to have with us Charles Kessler Editor-in-Chief of the Claremont Review of Books, but also author of a new book himself, Crisis of the Two Constitutions, The Rise, Decline, and Recovery of American Greatness. I'd like you to say something about that, Charles, because this book, it's such a beautifully done book, just out, folks, um, on everything we're talking about uh, from the philosophy of the American founding to where we are today and why America is great and should remain great. Um. I'm I'm thinking our teacher who you mentioned earlier, Harry Jaffa, put his finger on this in a way that was probably surprising at the time, but looks prophetic now. I think it was around 1976 when he wrote in 1776. How did he put it? Our founders looked at uh, the country as nothing promising to become everything. Today, 200 years later, having become everything, unfortunately, we may be looking at becoming nothing. Something like that is the concern. Wasn't <laughs> yes. It?
0: yes. 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 That, uh, I'd almost forgotten that, but you're right. That's a great uh, diagnosis of our problems. Uh, and many decades ago now, and before we had you know, won the Cold War, but winning the Cold War uh, in a way only exposed the internal problems of America uh, even more and made them more um, you know, dangerous, frankly.
1: That being so, that being so, the dangers we face—it has kind of given us this new pandemonium. If eighteen fifties and sixties were about one big thing, we now have so many big things, which really is why it is a crisis of two constitutions. The recovery to American greatness is—is—is is, is in a sense then it's—it's it's almost self-fulfilling, is—is is it not, Professor? It's—it's—it's it's it's the true revolution of just keeping the revolution, isn't it? As you've written before.
0: Yeah. Well, what we've got to do is, um, I mean, I, I have a chapter in this book which is about uh, Ronald Reagan, which mm-hmm. I think is, um, for me, was a very uh, interesting chapter to pursue, and it took me a long time, really, to sort of um, deal with all of the of the evidence and with the thoughts I had about it and get it into the form I finally did get it into for this book. Uh but Reagan, you know, Reagan was a, a great conservative statesman. He was a great American statesman. Um, but, and he, he saw the problem of America uh, very clearly, that uh, we were becoming a different country um, than what the country we had been, because we no longer had a sense of our own, uh, or what made us uh, a force for good in the world uh, and at home. We had lost the sense of, what he called, uh, unambivalent patriotism. We mm-hmm. didn't know how and why to celebrate ourselves properly. Mm-hmm. Um, but he said that having himself sparked a kind of great revival of American patriotism in the course of his two terms in office and, and, you know, for many years thereafter, but he himself saw that he had not succeeded in institutionalizing that patriotism. Um, so he, he he set himself from a very young age as a politician, to trying to lead us back to the original Constitution, to lead us back to that um, place of understanding our goodness as in the world, uh, broadly speaking, that Americans you know before the twentieth century had understood, and even in the beginning of the twentieth century had well understood, as well. But we're now forgetting, and he diagnosed the problem, but he could not really, he didn't have a solution to it, which he himself sort of admitted in his farewell address. That's right. and, the, and the problem was um, he had a kind of Mayflower Compact model of, uh, of American politics, presuming that the people were a good people, a virtuous people, and that you could count on that, and what you had to do was sort of put the people back in charge of the government. Rather than let the government be misleading and dominating the people, but the problem was the people themselves were now confused about why they had been good and how they might be good again. And and in order to persuade them, you couldn't just you know empower them. You couldn't just give them restore their sovereignty. You had to really educate them. You had to teach why America was good. You had to argue with the premises of the left. And that's very difficult for conservatives to do, oddly enough.
1: You know, there's this interesting debate going on. You've seen it, no doubt. People who tend to be pro-Trump tend to say the nostrums and nostalgia of Ronald Reagan in the 80s were great then, but maybe not so good for us right now. And the people who are never Trump say, boy, uh, Reagan and Trump were just such two different animals. Uh, There's no comparison. I agree with neither. I wonder if I can run that by you and get your thoughts on the other side of this break. Sure,
0: because I'm thinking about this problem,
1: too. Excellent. We'll be right back with Charles Kessler. Welcome back to The Seth Liebson Show. Delighted to have uh, Professor Charles uh, Kessler with us. He is the editor-in-chief of the Claremont Review of Books, as uh, well as the author of Crisis of the Two Constitutions. Uh, professor, um, I um, I would say this. He changed the federal judiciary from the Supreme Court down. He um, He slashed taxes and regulations to promote tremendous growth. He destroyed uh, and lift people from poverty to middle class. He destroyed a great enemy of the United States, and he reinvigorated an interest in saying the um, quiet part for the majority of Americans out loud, which is, this is a great country and we shall defend it. About the president I just said, you could say Donald Trump or Ronald Reagan, what are the best things you liked about Donald Trump? Turns out they're about the best things people say they liked about Ronald Reagan. So when people say that nostrums of the 80s and Reaganism are inapplicable to the MAGA movement um, going forward, or when people say Reagan and Trump are nothing alike, I just don't agree. But I wonder where you fall on this uh, continuum or dichotomy, I guess I should say.
0: Well, I, I hear a lot from young conservatives. Um, that you know Reagan is uh, uh, belongs to a different right. uh, time and is uh, over the hill, you know, mm-hmm. and and Trump is responding. Trump is is uh, is sort of uh, a uh, corrective to Reagan, or he say he supplanted Reagan, um, and I don't think uh, that's really true. I, I think you can learn a lot from, and there are many things to admire in Trump. Uh, but that, uh, there's, there is more continuity, uh, between Trump and Reagan than you might think. Right, right. And that in any case, there's still many lessons that only Reagan can teach us, uh, because he, uh, you know, he articulated them in a way that lasts and in a way that is, uh, uh powerful and attractive and, and, and better really than the way you know, than the case that Trump made for himself. Mm-hmm. The case that Reagan made for Reagan is very good. The mm-hmm. case that Trump made for Trump is, uh, it's, it's, it was powerful, but it's not, I'm not sure it's lasting or mm-hmm. going to be lasting in quite the same way. Although, the, you know, the, we, we haven't come to 2024 yet, mm-hmm. so we don't know what direction, uh, Trumpism is going to be going in the next couple of years.
1: But you don't stand with those who say conservatism that defended Reagan changed when it defended Donald Trump, do you? I don't. I mean, I, I, I have spent the last five years trying to prove the opposite. Uh,
0: well, I mean, the situation changes in some ways. It changes. Okay. The issues have changed. Okay, of course. Because of Reagan's successes. You don't have to worry about the Soviet Union. Okay. You don't have to worry about communism in the same quite the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, what we what and what we have to worry about now is, um, I mean, woke communism, as my friend Tom Klingenstein calls it, which is, uh, you know, essentially an all American thing, an internal thing uh, that America is exporting to the world, in fact. And I'm sure you saw also, as I did with Amusement, that the French say they want no no part of American wokeism. And of the use that Americans have made of French deconstruction right. and postmodernism in, in, in composing our strange, wokest uh, uh, ideology these days. The French don't want any part of that, that all of that, that strangely American uh, self-destructive uh, fascination. But I think, the, I think we need to learn from both Trump and Reagan. And, to the, and especially because I see a lot of young people, you know, I, te- I, I, I teach yeah. freshmen and others, uh, I, I sort of uh, emphasize to them that there's still, uh, you know, Reagan is very relevant to our situation, even though you have to make several different kinds of changes to apply it to the issues of our day, which are slightly different in, in many ways, um, more than slightly different from the issues of the 1980s. In
1: his book, your other teacher that you mentioned and mentor, William Buckley, in his book, Up From Liberalism, what year are we talking? 1960, I think-ish?
0: Um, Close? 59, I think, okay. maybe is when it came out.
1: Yeah. All right. 59, 60. He has this line in there, Buckley does, that to defend America or to, I guess to preserve America, uh, liberalism is in need of defeat. And it is powerful, he said, but decadent. He said conservatism was weak but viable. This was 1959 or 60, I guess. Conservatism, weak but viable. Liberalism, powerful but decadent. I think still true in a sense, don't you? I'm not sure that's changed. Um, I would say we've both gotten a bit stronger. Both sides got a bit stronger but um, but I, I do think there is a power to liberalism that conservatism has not yet found or been able to flex enough muscle on. I see institutions we keep retreating from. In other words, right. you know, uh, who knew we'd lose the NFL or the Department of Defense? But you know,
0: we have <laughs> well, got I, talk I, radio, Charles. We yeah, got talk yeah. radio. <laughs> no, no. As I was saying, uh, you know, the situation is different today. I mean, we you didn't have to face in even in the, in the 60s, the loss of the Fortune 500. I That's mean, right. That's right. Uh, capitalism is, you know, or, or you know, mainstream big, big uh, business capitalism is really on the other side now. It was it was des- it was definitely not on the other side in the 50s or the 1960s. So we're in we're in a new territory that Reagan didn't have to uh, worry about so much, but mm-hmm. when Buckley said that in '59, he was thinking, of course, of two things. I would say one is that conservatism itself was very young.
1: Uh-huh.
0: I mean, he just started National Review in 1955, so it was weak, yeah, in the sense that it was it was you know uh, getting its, it's sea legs, yeah, sure, stages, yeah. 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 Uh, but also, uh, it had you know, it's it's uh, it's a rival at, at this at the, in these youthful but weak. Um, um, years uh, followed a, a huge defeat for sort of constitutional conservatism in the New Deal, mm. Mm. And, and in a way it, that uh, you know the, the the Republican Party orthodoxy had been almost wiped out in the 1930s uh, in the New Deal, and uh, and in a way also on foreign policy, you know the case for a more a more modest and nationalist foreign policy had seemed to be wiped out by World War II and then by the beginning of the Cold War. And Bill was trying to adjust, you know, um, uh, you know right-wing foreign policy to a more interventionist and aggressive um, uh, anti-communist uh, uh, strategy uh, as opposed to the, I, I wouldn't call it isolationist, but the more modest uh, foreign policy of the old Republican Party. Uh, and, and, and so again, you have to make these kinds of, um, of changes. But, uh, you know, I think, uh, conservatism, young conservatives, um, understandably think that the age in which they're growing up is unique. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and that there's really, it has no connections with um, what happened in the 1930s, mm-hmm. or even in the 1960s? Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact is, it it has a lot to do with the 1960s, and even with the 1930s. Those issues are still alive. I mean, uh, you may not so you may not want to talk about, uh, you know, uh, balancing the budget or reining back uh, uh, social programs, but those issues are. are alive and are going to emerge you know at some point as as the headlines of the day because the they go back to what happened in the 1930s and the way that America was changed and American government was changed in the 1930s we we can't simply forget about those things because they're going to come back at some point
1: Charles Kessler has been my guest. He's the editor-in-chief of the Claremont Review of Books, Claremont.org, uh, if you would like to subscribe. I highly recommend it. He is also the author of brand-new book, Crisis of the Two Constitutions, The Rise, Decline, and Recovery of American Greatness. You want uh, one book for the year, that's your book. It explains everything. Charles Kessler, dear friend, dear teacher, thank you for your time. Thank you for your uh, brains. Thank you for your uh, teachings.
0: Thanks very much. Always a pleasure to talk to you, and I hope to see you in the old-fashioned sense, face-to-face, one of these days soon.
1: No masks, right?
0: No masks. Thank you, Professor. (laughs) And no Zoom. And no Zoom. Thank
1: you, teacher. (laughs) Bless you.
0: Okay. I'm Seth. We'll
1: be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. One thing we all do stand against is um, uh, distaste for monopolies. And if uh, you think Washington spending is a mess and corrupt, wait till the power company monopolies are done with you. So if you're thinking about going solar – You want to call my friend Solar Sandy. Not only did she bring integrity back to solar in Arizona, the major difference between Solar Sandy and the other solar companies is that she actually figured out how to truly zero out your power bill. So important. If you do go solar, you do it the right way, and Solar Sandy is the right way. She has the formula. Check out the testimonials on her website, asksolarsandy.com. They're amazing, and she has a great deal. If you sign up with her now, she will pay your power bills for one year and your solar panel payments for one year, and you will receive a $1,000 bonus signing. That's right, a $1,000 bonus signing and no power bills or solar power payments for one year. She'll do appointments in person or by Zoom, and you can get started by going right to AskSolarSandy.com, AskSolarSandy.com, or give her a call at 623 eight two two nine. I'm Seth Leapson. We'll be right back.